welcome to season one of Bristlecone Firesides, casual conversation around a virtual fireside about faith, the earth, the universe, and everything. In this first season, we will be exploring foundational themes of spiritual practice rooted in the earth. We are your hosts, Abby and Madison. Join us as we strive to re-enchant the natural world with an ecologically-based spirituality that is centered in sacred text, rooted in the earth, and lived through the activist issues facing us today. Welcome to Briscoe Firesides. Uh, if you would, could you give us a brief introduction to who you are and how you come to this conversation about spirituality and Mormonism and, and the environment? Oh, sure. Um, so I am a Utah native. I grew up in the Mill Creek area. And um, so I've always sort of had a, a love for the natural world. I grew up going to the canyons all the time and exploring. And ended up studying environmental studies and English for my undergrad at the University of Utah. And then went on a mission, went to Italy, came back and pursued a master's in landscape architecture and environmental planning at Utah State University. And so those interests have sort of taken me on different paths. I was very interested in potentially doing an MFA in poetry but then realized that I really wanted to be grounded in the land and my work. Um, I just felt like I needed to have that connection. And so combining um, sort of the artist brain in design with the scientific was kind of a great combination. Um, but I still really missed writing and missed poetry. And so I sort of got drawn back into that and um, published a collection of poetry a year ago, almost two years ago. Wow. Very <laughs> Called good. the tree at the center. And, um, that also combines my love of language, obviously, and of the land and spirituality. So that's been a really great sort of vehicle for having more conversations about, um, the land and about the divine feminine and, uh, LDS theology. So it's been really, a really wonderful, wonderful thing. So now, yeah, I'm home with two small children and starting a new book. So I'm really a excited new book? About, about that. Yeah. Mm, very excited about that. <laughs> <laughs> a, yeah. More to come. Oh, great. So cool. Well, I know that, so, uh, yeah. Catherine, you, you kind of have like, I saw a tree at the center was uh, published by the, the, uh, by common consent press. Um, and so I, you were on my radar then, and then you've kind of popped up on a number of podcasts in a number of, like dialogue journal. Um, and then me and you have, uh, collaborated on a couple of sunstone panels, um, for the, the sunstone symposium. I know last summer we, we were, uh, I facilitated a panel, um, that you were on with a number of others. And so we've already, uh, you know, worked together to some degree. Uh, and it is a, it is an absolute pleasure to get to, to, to bring you in on this conversation today. Uh, and, uh, so I'm excited to, to get going. Um, thanks so much. So the, uh, the topic at hand is the, the end of days and, and building Zion. And, <laughs> and, uh, I thought, you know, uh, it, the end of days wouldn't be, uh, it'd be hard to have a conversation about the end of days in 2020 without 
acknowledging how how hard 2020 has been uh, as a year. I mean, all years are hard, but it just seems like 2020 has been particularly hard. So I've kind of compiled a list here of of all the stuff that's happened. And going through this, it was like, oh, wow, I forgot that Australia was on fire this year. And it felt like it was 10 years ago. Um, so yeah, off the bat, Australian wild, wild wildfires, um, over 30 million acres were burned, um, over 15,000 15, individual burns, uh, and it was the worst fire, fire season that they've ever had. Um, there was almost a war between Iran and Iraq uh, earlier in the year. There was a presidential impeachment, global earthquakes in Turkey, Mexico, and in Salt Lake City, which scared the pants out of most of us, I think. <laughs> Oh yeah. Um, the Navy releases videos of UFOs, uh, murder hornets in the Pacific Northwest, the murder of George Floyd this summer in the massive, uh, uh, black lives matter uprising. Um, the American West was on fire, particularly California, Oregon, uh, and Utah. Utah also had had the worst fire season we've ever had. Um, at, uh, the hurricane season was, horrific in both the Pacific and the Atlantic with over 30 named storms, um, in both oceans and the Atlantic average is only 12. And so to have 30 is, is just amazing. Um, there were locust swarms in the middle East and in Africa, political unrest in the United States, like we've never seen before. Um, and just last week an unexplained metal monolith in the desert of Utah popped up and maybe that's aliens. <laughs> Who knows? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I, I didn't really read that one in Revelation, uh, but uh, but it's par for the course. Um, so yeah, I that's kind of a, a for a, a beginning into talking about the last days, and uh, we are the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, and so the context of our membership in this organization. Um, in this church is the last days. So I, I kind of wanted to, to talk about that. Uh, you know, how does that color us as a community? Cause I, I remember I was telling Abby right before you jumped on that, like when I was a teenager, um, the, the, sh the quote unquote, like the shadow of the last days hung over my mind a lot that I had this weird kind of morbid fascination with the, the end times and apocalypse scenarios and reading the, you know, what are the signs of the times and trying to, you know, uh, you know, be familiar with that. Um, but it also kind of came along with an internalized environmental fatalism. I think that, you know, I mm. was kind of a burgeoning environmentalist when I was a teenager. And I remember thinking, but why do any of this stuff when the world's going to burn anyways? And so is this a familiar story to you guys? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it, for me, the, feeling of that and the fear and sort of the dread goes hand in hand with my first understanding of sin and accountability for sin and like the repentance process, like that it felt so overwhelming and so larger than I could handle and process. And like, how is it really possible that like, there's this thing that's atoned for and then, and then how is it really possible that like, I could be prepared on any level for something so horrendous and all destructive in the future. Like it was very hard as a child to, to try to process that. Yeah, I think, I mean, I feel like my experience is similar to yours, Catherine, in that 
you know, it's a lot for a child to process. I remember learning about it um, pretty early on in primary um, and then teaching, you know, the signs, these specific signs that would be uh, indicators of this particular um, end of days. And, and for a child, you know, to hear the darkening of the sun and, um, you know, all of these different kind of uh, dramatic events that might um, play out felt um, really, really, uh, you know, kind of damning for a child, <laughs> um, something you don't typically experience in your kind of um, ignorant and, and perhaps um, innocent mind. Um, but I, I do think it's always been there. Um, I, I remember reading something about Joseph Smith um, kind of attesting that this was the last days, even, you know, while he was alive. Um, and that kind of mentality has continued on. Um, and we're kind of in a perpetual state of, of latter days. Um, and so that concept is also kind of interesting, uh, the concept mm -hmm. of time and, and how long that that might take. Um, and mm -hmm. so in some ways we as as members of the Church of Latter-day Saints, um, you know, we should be the most prepared for this. Yeah, I, I've been thinking lately about the difference between linear and cyclical interpretations of time and reading probably too much Richard Rohr. And I don't think there's such a thing present. as too much Richard Rohr. <laughs> I know I'm totally being, there's not, I'm totally joking. Um, but it's fascinating to me that you see through the scriptures thousands of years ago, right? Like this urgency about the latter days, like the prophecies of Isaiah, Christ speaking, the apostles speaking. It's like there's this immediacy to the prophecy, to the, it being pertinent in the day in which the prophet or Christ is speaking. But then there's also the future tense. There's also this is for times to come. And that really fascinates me because I find more resonance now with the, the idea of things being all present as much as my like human mind can fathom that, that there is a truth to um, like your, in, your internal state, how you are perceiving the moment and how you are living and how you are present with those around you being the way in which we access eternal truths and heaven now, the way that we can live now as we would if we were already resurrected, if we were all, if we had already made that linear journey, right? And so I, I sort of have been applying this to this year, 2020, like seeing, um, what feels more cyclical to me and maybe it's on a grander scale, maybe like the cycling back of like cause and effect or positive feedback loops are grander now because of the global scale of the issues that we have or whatever it is. But I, it's been really interesting to feel at once 
fearful and sort of like, this is crazy and watching it and also feeling like this is as it should be. Like this is part of the process that um, has to happen in, for us to, to be reconciled. And um, so anyway, so in terms of thinking about the earth, because we know through our theology that the earth will be the home of the celestial kingdom. That's what we teach. Um, how is it, if we are to be celestial beings, how is it that we can treat the earth as we have and still, you know, expect to have this be our home? And you know, this is a complete disconnect. And so anyway, this is a long answer, but... <laughs> Um, it's been more helpful for me to think about um, it's everything is now. It's not a future date. Like the way that we are now, the way that we prepare now, the way that we um, are awake now is the greatest indicator for what is going to be after our our, our death, I guess. <laughs> yeah, so, no, I, uh, I hear a little bit of, of Richard Rohr in there. I also hear a little bit of Adam Miller and Thomas McConkie. Um, Adam Miller mm -hmm. has that yeah. book, you know, an early resurrection where he talks about, you know, our presence yeah. and can we live as though Christ has already come. Um, and so I think these are, these are very important narratives to bring in when we're talking about, you know, the, the end days or the, the last days. Um, and, uh, you know, I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, after the, after, at the beginning of the pandemic and after the earthquake that there was a, a faith matters podcast, faith matters foundation. I don't know if either of you heard of them, um, where Thomas McConkie was on and he talked about how, you know, it's, it's, it's all going somewhere good that this universe, the, the story of the universe is all going somewhere good. It's that same idea of, you know, the, the, the arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And that can, can I have faith that even though right now, 2020 has been an absolute hell of a year, can I have faith that ultimately we're headed somewhere good? Um, and is, can the present moment be the fire that is like purging, burning sin out of me? Right. And can I show up and be present for the hellishness of right now and be able to find heaven in it somehow. More broadly speaking of just our, rather than our own individual experiences, but as a community, um, you know, we're going to talk through some of the common, I think fallacies when, at least in regards to the environment and the end of the end of, you know, the, the last days. Um, but is there a sort of internalized fatalism in our community? Uh, you know, I know on an individual level, we've all kind of wrestled with that. But do you think as a community in general, we have this internal sense of, you know, there it's all fatal. There's no sense in doing anything. It's hard to generalize. I think it because is hard there are so many different communities within the church, right. And, um, an American Western sort of perspective, I think is different in a lot of ways, but I do feel like the, the grand scale of the, the issues that we're facing specifically, um, climate change and, um, 
those really all-encompassing and threatening issues are to really face them is is kind of terrifying and it's easier to sort of go day to day manage the things you can manage and think about the things that are in front of you the tangible things and that you know there's been this ongoing story of well what can you do like recycle drive less yada yada and it's like well no that's really not the root of the issue and I think people really do know that. And so it, it's beginning to, people are beginning to be fatigued by the idea that they really have any power within just their family or community to really affect change. Um, and so there is, there is, I think, just rooted in sort of our, um, I guess you would say is like our Protestant heritage, this idea of like, well, this is one life and this is one existence, but we're moving on to something better, hopefully. And there's a, there is that disconnect. There is that linear framing of this is now we endure it. We try to endure it well, and then there'll be the next life. Um, so, yeah, I think I, I have, I have seen at least in my communities growing up in Utah, um, a real difficulty around addressing a lot of major issues that are outside of our community um, that we just sort of turn inward and focus just on the LDS, you know, our network and the activities that we do together, the sort of, you know, that those sort of activities we do, Relief Society, Priesthood, Young Women's, Young Men's, and like that's sort of the extent largely of um the things we focus on i guess like we feel like if we can do those things and be active and participate we're doing our part um and i i do wish we had a larger uh sense of accountability perhaps i would agree i think um just to kind of build off of your point uh, something that kind of felt fatiguing in um, like a lot of ecological classes that I would take and, and um, more science-based classes um, is that even some of the the articles or research that was released almost felt kind of grounded in fatalism um, or mm -hmm. at least the idea of too little, too late um, and mm -hmm. that the problem problem has grown so large um, and, and too few people um, are actually reading these articles or even if they are reading them, um, taking it upon themselves to actually make change, like you said. Um, and so I think when you have the issue of um, not only, you know, these communities, but, but kind of the research to echo it um, and, and to kind of echo that, that pessimism about the situation, um, in some ways, it feels uh, uncontrollable and, and beyond the point of repair. Um, and so as a community or as an individual, even trying to, like you said, motivate this change or um, kind of address these, these difficult conversations um, feels very daunting and, and almost unachievable. Mm. Yeah. When you were speaking, I was thinking as well, as well about... Um, how we become rooted in just like 
I'll speak about North America, I guess, <laughs> in the culture in which we're, you know, we're, we're born and raised. So thinking about sort of the rise of modernity and um, the ways in which we as a people tried to sort of conform culturally to what was going on around us, like in very funny ways, like no beards, whatever, like no more drinking, no more whatever, like in ways that like really don't matter, right? Um, that we that we have become very, like part of our identity is very tied and rooted to um, conformity and being in line with what is lawful and what is like, see, like seemingly uh, just, you know, straightforward down the line, all of that. And I think that, I think that has to do is with the way that we approach these issues as well, or don't approach them that, um, like what would be a truly Christ centered Zion centered approach to like getting out of Babylon would literally be totally changing our lives, like changing how we live, where we live, how we commune, how we act and uh, work, how we, like every aspect of our life would be altered if we were really living in harmony with the earth, with its cycles, with its ecosystems, with each other. Like if we're really living, and we can talk about this later, I know you have like a whole list of other things, but if we were really wanting to mourn with those who mourn, to really support each other, to really be in communion with each other, um, we would break free essentially of the system. Like it, we just would. And so I think that's the thing that's heartbreaking for me is that I want my community so desperately to um, be free of Babylon, like just to let it go. And the ways in which it entangles us are numerous and can really just like be in there in ways that we don't even comprehend until years later, right? Like we're entangled in something or whatever it is. Like it's, um, it really is hard to rise as a community with Christ at the center if you've got part of your heart, part of your mind, whatever, engaged in the systems of Babylon. And we do as LDS people, like we do, we're completely plugged into the economic and hierarchical and um, power structures that keep everything destroying the earth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. So, so far uh, in our previous episodes, we've talked about how uh, we're disconnected. So we're, we're decontextualized um, from the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, not only as, as members of the LDS church, but also as Americans, as people in the Western yeah. hemisphere and the Northern Western hemisphere, right. That we, we are cut off from our a larger contextual understanding of what it means to be in community with each other, not just with each other, but also in community with other non-human beings. Um, and that, 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 uh, you know, we, just like you said, that we seem to be so preoccupied with external, you know, kind of purity code, uh, cultural 
cultural markers like do you have a beard <laughs> as someone who went to BYU and struggled yeah. with that uh, the entire time <laughs> I, w- I was so glad to leave BYU and g- get my scruff back um uh yeah we 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 tend to be in the thick of thin things um and I wonder you know there I, there yep. is a lot of stuff that is like holding us down there's a lot of baggage that we're holding like you've already mentioned there's some puritanical baggage uh from our own heritage as Christians in America that we're holding on to um but I think some of the other you know the way that we talk about the last days can be very disempowering um and mm-hmm. And I think it can it can short circuit the way that we even approach the end of days, and it can create not that we want to be fatal about you know the the future, but it can create a fa- a fatalness inside of us. Uh, and so I I kind of want to start deconstructing some of these disempowering narratives. Um, and uh, I so I think one of the one of the first ones that I know I encounter a lot. Um, from, from myself back when I was a teenager, f- my own friends and family is, uh, is the phrase, things are going to get so much worse. This is just the beginning. Right. And at this point, nothing grinds my gears worse than saying, just, just you wait, it's going to get so much worse because in my mind that it short changes the present moment. And it, it is like, not only can I not recognize how good and bad, you know, the dual natured, you know, uh, the dual natured present right now, uh, not, so not only am I short circuiting the goodness of the present moment for how bad something might possibly get, but I'm also not honoring how bad things are right now. Uh, because I'm, I think that the world's going to get so much worse. And so it prevents me from being able to see reality as it is. You guys have any thoughts on that? I have so many. (laughs) Go ahead. Hear your thoughts too, Catherine, because I feel like you know it's so important to have guests and um, and to hear everyone's voices. So, <laughs> I mean, I want you to go first. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, Matt. When you were talking, Madison, I was thinking about um, what bothers me about it, and it bothers me for the same reasons it bothers you, and it also. Um, like the concept of like it is going to get so much worse. It's like you're already disassociated, right? It's like you're vocalizing how much you feel outside of all of this stuff that's happening. Um, like that you're not a party to it or you're not present with it or you're not um, involved and it's outside of you and um, you're not an agent of action, right? And that it's something that you have to live through and endure as part of mortality. It's like that same, it runs in the same vein for me as just like the natural world out here and we're the human beings. Like we're the ones at the top of the food chain. The natural world is the background. It's the scenery in which we act. Like we have the the right to act and to be stewards and to have like the voice um, rather than being integrated into these systems and being um, part of the causal, one of the nodes on that causal chain. And so, I don't know, I think a lot about Tolkien. Like, I think a lot about The Hobbit. Like, we love Tolkien just, here. Like, wait, like, just totally waiting for 
stuff to pass. Like they don't want to deal with it. Um, and I know we have so much more in us than that. Like, I know we have so much more capacity to really see things and to, um, to understand that like, it doesn't have to get worse. It doesn't have to, like, there's nowhere written that says, this is the trajectory. And like, this is you at this point. And no matter what you do, it's going to get worse. Like, that's not a written story. And I think that's the hard thing, right? Like, as someone who believes very powerfully in like, our, the ability of, um, of a few people, a small community, grassroots efforts to really affect change. Like that's a very disheartening and faithless approach to the world. And it's like, if that's your approach to the world, what is your approach, your personal approach to God? Like, it's just indicative of so many levels of um, how you interface with yourself, with the world. And it's just very disheartening. I feel like as LDS people, we should be at the forefront of like, this earth has a spirit. It's going to be our eternal home. We want it to be our eternal home. We will do everything to fight for its sovereignty, for its health, because its health is our health. We see that direct link. We honor that link. Um, and we will fight against whatever powers want to com continue to commodify and destroy and um, take advantage of those who have no voices. Um, yeah, I, I want to obviously echo everything you just said. Um, but something else that I've been thinking about and, and that, you know, you raised some good points about, um, is just this idea of passivity, um, and I've been reading a lot of Kierkegaard, so forgive me if I get a little existential here, but, um, obviously, you know, he's, he's a Christian philosopher, um, and he talks a lot about, you know, passivity as being a form of sin, um, that we're denying ourselves the opportunity for agency and, and to take part in kind of the shaping of ourselves, um, and that, uh, you know, to not make a choice is, is simply a sin. Um, and I think of that, um, you know, just as you were talking, um, but also in this this similar idea of, you know, by not actively trying to work towards a better future, um, we're essentially sinning against God. Uh, we're sinning against his creation um, and we're not actively trying to take part as stewards, but also in shaping ourselves and our relationship with the earth. Um, which, like you said, Catherine, is totally disengaging. Um, and, and we can never expect to have, um, you know, a repaired relationship with the earth um, if we don't actually try to seek after forming um, or perhaps repairing that relationship. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I. The more time I spend alone in nature, the more I feel how God is in nature, like physically. And for me, it's the feminine. For me, it's um, the earth being a feminine body, a very real presence. And 
And I know I'm not the only person who feels that, right? Like I know that the more people do sort of put themselves in an openness in nature, in the world, that there is this receiving of a presence that they experience and um, a deep sense of wisdom and knowing that is in the natural world. And that's not just like new agey speak. That's not just like a good feeling. That's the thread that ties us to creation, which ties us to God. And if we don't see God in the natural world, we don't see God in ourselves. We don't understand the true character of God. And we can't have true faith. We can't have um, faith that turns into actions that bind us together and bind our love and our goodness and our harmony together eternally, which is essentially what God wants for us, right? Like anytime you spoke to a prophet, anytime Christ was beckoning to us, it was to access this power of God to be one with the father, which is to be one with the mother. And he was the path, right? He was the path to that oneness. And, um, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I think, I think a lot, a lot of it is a state of woundedness. I think that separation from God, separation from right. Adam. And this is a huge understanding for me that Adam was one and separated into feminine and masculine, that there's the, there's the direct separation from God. Um, there's the separation from ourselves, right? Like the separation, the female from the masculine, from the from the male the male from the female and then the removal um and then the greater removal of babylon from like another form of god which is nature so we have these sort of three levels of of removal from godliness which is truth which is light being intertwined and held captive and wounded by babylon and false truths false truths False, just falsehoods, <laughs> fake news, <laughs> lies, whatever distortion. Alternative that we facts. Have. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we start telling ourselves like false stories. We have false programming. We're, you know, we're in the matrix. Like we have all of these things that um, are that we're told about who we are and our worth that just aren't true. And I think um, an essential step back to to knowing God is that return to creation is that return to understanding the fabric of creation and how you fit in and how those are the mysteries of godliness. Like it's not this huge thing that like all of a sudden we're going to be like, Oh, we've come to the like Holy of Holies in the temple. We've reached the end of our journey, our ascension journey. And it's this thing we can't even imagine. Like, no, it's just like God wants everything to be sealed up together in love. That's all it is. And we have to want that inside of ourselves. We have to be able to work through our woundedness to increase that desire and to increase our wokeness about, <laughs> right? Like yeah. what, is, what is it that is really worth fighting for and saving and thinking about and spending your money on and your time on? Like, yeah. You know, it, 
uh, that you, you, you bring up woundedness as well as at the beginning of, of this, uh, this particular point when we were talking about the disconnection and how it's almost as though when we say it's going to get so much worse, we're just an audience member watching it. Um, that, yeah. that it's kind of a defense mechanism because being present and being vulnerable and getting in touch with our wounds, it hurts. You know, it kind of sucks on some oh, level yeah. because it, it requires so much from us. It requires us to, to see our shadow as Richard Rohr says. Right. And it requires us to realize, oh, my life has a, a, a direct impact, not just on the people around me, but also on the world around me. And that is a tremendous undertaking, um, as individuals and as a community. So I think it's, it's a, it's a defense mechanism and, uh, what mm-hmm. you're right that what God ultimately wants from us is to be sealed together in love. And to me, what that looks like is a full on embrace of the good and the bad and the, the entirety of it. Right. It's a, it's as Richard Rohr, <laughs> I laugh because I've brought up Richard Rohr in every single episode multiple times. <laughs> so Richard Rohr, if you're nice. hearing this, I'd love to be on your podcast. Um, but, uh, it's the, uh, <laughs> It's the, the long loving look at, at the real, right? That, that can we, can I look at what's real and be present with it enough to see myself as an engaged actor in these end day, you know, these, these quote unquote last days, right? Rather than just as an audience member, because I, I, I don't think mm-hmm. that God wants us to be audience members. <laughs> it's not a movie. <laughs> this is life. Yeah. 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 That I actually... I'm just uh, listening to one of his books, um, the one about becoming a mystic. I don't remember the title. It's so good, though. Oh, he so and I wish I had the quote, but I have it on audio, so I don't have it in front of me. But he essentially was talking about Western culture as being this watered down um, version of reality in the sense that we focus so much on just the positive, the light, the, the looking for like the good. Um, I don't know if I throw gratitude in there, just sort of like being very uncomfortable with the existence of shadows of darkness, of understanding how they're integrated, how one plays off the other, how like doubt is one side of the coin to faith, like an understanding the necessity for both in progression and growth and reaching the higher plane of understanding and spiritual being in the world. And I, I value that so much. And I, I felt that since I was young, that we, we give lip service to suffering and mourning. And we talk about it as something just to like pass through without complaining, right? Like heaven forbid, especially the Mormon woman, you complain about your suffering because we all have to do it just like get on with it. And then like talk to me about like your gratitude. Like I only want to hear about the beautiful things in your life or how God got you through something rather than like sinking deeply into the darkness and feeling out what richness is in that darkness and understanding that your shadow side, your weaknesses your pain, your woundedness, your vulnerability, all the childhood crap that comes out <laughs> when you get older that you've had to deal with. 
and it just gets worse when you're married like the degree to which like it like surfaces <laughs> great <laughs> like, endorsement for marriage here <laughs> sorry i'm just <laughs> like, kidding good things to look forward to yeah um it's all there as a form of mercy like to look at it and see it and to see how your parents woundedness and their inability to deal with things or to communicate about things was passed on to them. Like all of this is intergenerational and it's um, the fact that it comes to you as the next generation is mercy. It's a, it's another opportunity for you to help heal what has happened in the past to restructure, to recreate, to be a, God in the moment for yourself and for your posterity to say, I see this thing, you know, if it's abuse, whatever it is, and I'm not going to treat it or see it in the way that has been um, done in the past. And I'm going to approach it with love and mercy and I'm going to alter it. I'm going to change it. I'm going to make it something that allows me to move through the world with more grace and more love and more openness. Um, and just one small stab at patriarchy, I think that women innately have that capacity and as, a as their rightful place in culture and society, it is to hold those stories and to help uh, people feel and to be okay feeling and to be okay, vulnerable, that their presence where decisions are being made, their presence in positions of power and authority open that realm and having women completely shut out from any, any possible position of authority in the church and most within the world at large um, is what cripples us and what allows toxic masculinity to run rampant. Um, I mean, yes, as a woman, I can, I can definitely, um, kind of reaffirm much of what you said. And I feel a lot of that, um, on the day to day, um, but also within the church as well. Um, and, and feeling kind of sequestered, um, in a certain position, um, in which I feel discomfort for some of the, the things that I feel or I want to change. Um, but beyond that, also the idea that until we recognize that, um, that power within the feminine, um, I, I think like you said, Catherine, it, it will become almost impossible for us to kind of recognize that within the earth too. Um, and these strains of, of kind of suppression, um, that we impose on the earth, um, and, and that we feel we can, tame it or um, kind of will it out of authority um, by simply just taking its voice away. Um, and so in mm -hmm. that sense, I feel a lot of parallels with the earth um, and, and as my feminine self, um, you know, a lot of those kind of lines drawn, um, um, you know, in, in parallel to that as well. Absolutely. Um. So let's, I'm, I'm, we're kind of deviating from the outline a little bit here. Um, but this, 
I think I think this aspect of the end of days and the renewal of the earth is so important. Um, is kind of the recapturing of this divine feminine. Uh, and Catherine, in our Sunstone uh, panel, we, we, we you know this was kind of one of the central ideas. So let me just call an audible here and ask it ask a question that isn't on the outline. What is the role of the divine feminine in the restoration of the earth and the building of Zion? Because I know that a lot of your, you know, especially your book, The Tree at the Center, deals really, you know, really strongly on, uh, you know, the, the presence of a divine female, you know, Heavenly Mother, uh, and the, kind of this world tree, the, you know, metaphor. And uh, I, it's something that has captivated my imagination, and I've, I've uh, loved, you know, kind of engaging in you with, or, or engaging with you in conversation about this. So I think this is in, an important aspect of this conversation that I, I would love to tease out right now. Sure. Um, I just finished a book uh, called If Women Rose Rooted by Sharon Blackie. And I want to buy like a thousand copies and just give it to every person I've ever met. <laughs> It's really incredible. And it, um, so I have a lot of Welsh heritage, uh, English, some Scottish, you know, yeah, just lots of like Celtic roots, some German, whatever, all that stuff. Um, and I've always been drawn to Celtic mythology. Like as a young geeky child, like junior high, I was like studying like Celtic tribes and like really into the stories and the myths. And I think a lot of the draw for me was, the connection to the natural world. And in this book by Blackie, she talks about um, a very old Celtic myth that describes beautifully the relationship of women to the land and to, and their role as um, those who keep harmony and structure and uh, a right relationship with the land. And uh, it, it has a, a few different uh, translations. It, it's, it's gone through like some morphine over like the generations, but essentially it's about a, the other world, which in Celtic mythology is sort of this, this plane or dimension of existence that uh, is within sort of like maybe overlaid next to the realm in which we live and there are times of the year in certain places in the land especially in Ireland where there's they call them thin spaces there's sort of an opening between the two worlds and the wisdom and the knowledge from the other world we as mortals have access to so this myth talks about um a woman of of power and influence perhaps the queen of the other world inviting women um, to her palace in the other world. And it, it talks about them coming down underground into this beautiful palace. And she has this chalice that she fills with the waters of life, the waters of wisdom. And she gives one to every woman and they drink and they're sort of imbued with this wisdom and they take it above and, um, they're all sort of gatekeepers for the wells in Ireland. And I don't know how much you know about Ireland, but there's, I think, literally over like 8,000 
designated wells like this, just like this land that just has natural springs and water coming up everywhere. Um, and so these women uh, represent sort of the wisdom that is brought forth, ancient wisdom that helps to keep the land in balance. And they're the gatekeepers of the wells. And the kings have to sort of answer to these women about how they treat the land, how their kingdoms are are ordered, and if they maintain balance with the natural order of things. And um, soon enough, there's a king who is evil and comes, and uh, he and his men rape and kill all of these women. And soon the wells dry up, and they're lost. And... Um, it becomes the wasteland and it's referred to as the wasteland. And you can think of T.S. Eliot's wasteland as well. It's like a direct uh, connection to that, to that mythology. And uh, that is just a really powerful story for me in terms of how I feel about women and their balancing role in um, maintaining harmony in the land that we naturally through our just even the wiring of our brains, like we're literally wired for connection and to be able to hold a lot of uh, things together in connection. We, we want community, we seek community and um, the way that, you know, suburbia works, urbanization works is to literally silo women. So they are, and motherhood does that to a greater degree, right? That you, you live in your own house. Um, you have neighbors, yes, but you work for so long at a job by yourself in an office or you're a mother and you're alone in your house or whatever it is. Like for the most part, our daily activities are done in, in a sort of isolation and um, we're disconnected from how, what we eat, what we wear, what we drive the larger corporations that run the country, like we're, we're disconnected from the cause and effect of our actions and the larger actions, uh, like on a grander scale. And so, um, women have become disconnected from their wisdom, from their native wisdom and their native abilities to sort of be in this place of accountability. Um, and, I think it's, it is only going to be women and uh, people who, women leading the charge, right? But like anyone who's willing and wanting to connect with their feminine aspect that will lead us to a place of healing and reconciliation with the natural world. I think it's part of our calling. I think it's part of our, div our divine nature. It's part of our divine potential to, to bring harmony and balance back into the world. Um, and I think that is part of why going back to what Abigail was, was touching on women have been so disrespected and muted and silenced and objectified and commodified is because we are the gatekeepers. We are, our, our connection to the natural world is, um, it's, it's embodied like it's part of our our being it's very physical it's very um 
hard to explain, but, um, I think that's, uh, what, what is sort of terrifying to me when I see statistics, like the number one cause of homicide for women in the United States is like murder from by a, by a significant other, right. By a spouse or a partner. And, um, just these insane statistics about like women literally being silenced because they represent connection. They represent deity in that way. They represent Zion in that way. They represent communion in that way. And um, that, that just can't coexist with, like Babylon, it can't coexist with Satan and his designs. And so uh, I think a lot of women too are just sort of scared about what it means to actually speak out and speak up. Something that I think goes really well with what you were just talking about is um, a while back on a podcast called The Hidden Brain produced by NPR, um, one of the episodes talked about the Cassandra effect um, and Cassandra, you know, in, in mythology and, and historically um, was seen as a prophetess um, who predicted the fall of Troy um, and, and, you know, had that, that predilection and, and tried to announce these, um, the destruction of Troy and no one listened to her. Um, and so now in psychology and different elements or, or, or different fields, um, this kind of Cassandra effect is used to um, refer to people who um, give, you know, accurate projections, but who are not often listened to um, or who experience trauma from not being believed of their symptoms. Um, and I, I almost feel like, you know, women, every woman has experienced this just to a certain extent. Um, but I think it also uh, so so keenly ties back into this idea of the earth um, and that, you know, we have all of these projections for where the earth is going um, and, and for the direction of kind of um, the earth at large, uh, that scientists are reaffirming this, that, you know, it's, it's communities that are reaffirming this, it's um, those who are at risk, it's women, um, it's so many people who are who are trying to foretell this, um, you know, the, these projections of where the earth is headed. Um, and yet it still feels like not very many people are listening or those people in power to stop it, um, are not really listening. Um, and so in some ways, you know, that, that's another element that makes it almost feel, um, like the end of times, you know, is, is our inability to listen and, and that disengagement, like you said. Just to kind of, I, I want to jump into the second half, which is to talk about, you know, the first, you know, we can talk about the last days, but the last days are only one half of an equation. And the second half is what comes next, which is the millennium. It, it's Zion. It's, you know, it's this completely different way of being in the world and being with each other. Um, and so just to kind of tie a thread through what we just talked about, um, you know, I think that we, we've talked about disconnection and that 
you know, we're disconnected from the earth. We're disconnected from our bodies. We're disconnected from each other. Um, and we're disconnected to even some of the, you know, the energies inside of ourselves we're, we're you know, the male and the, the masculine part of ourselves and the female part of ourselves. And that for the last 2000, you know, thousands of years of, of, uh, of humanity on earth, one of those energies has been very dominant and very prominent and that that it's causing a lot of problems. The masculine energy, the, the over the, the, uh, the oh crap, what's the word? We're going to truncate or cut some of this. Out. <laughs> um, the, uh, the, the imbalance of masculine energies in this world that, that are running unchecked by our own internal, uh, feminine energies, as well as women in the world, um, has left the world uh, pretty unbalanced. And I think what I really like is, is this idea that reality, God uses reality to wake us up. You know, it's, I, I love to, to think, uh, in, in, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, there was, in one of the books, there was a character Puddleglum and they were all kind of caught underneath the spell of, of the white witch. And he, uh, he stepped on some fire and the fire burned him and it hurt him and it woke him up from the spell. And, mm. uh, and that, that image is always in my mind. And so I wonder if the last days of all the, the tumultuousness in the last days is not something that's caused by us, but used by God to wake us up into a new way of being in the world. And that's how, that's how, you know, we can start moving into Zion. Um, and so, you know, in the first half, we talked about disempowering narratives and, and, you know, things that are disempowering to us as well as the disconnections. And so I, I want to shift into talking, how can we talk about Zion and the, the, you know, what comes next in very empowering ways that can enable us to begin changing the world. Uh, so, you know, cause so, sometimes I, I worry that discussions about Zion and about the millennium are so abstract that they're almost sci-fi, you know, it's almost, it's almost, you know, like, like solar punk, like it's, it's, it's some movie with a huge budget that, that, that we just, it's hard for us to imagine. And if we can't imagine something, we can't live it. Uh, and so like, what does Zion look like? What would it, what would it be like to wake up in a Zion like world where the, the masculine feminine energies have been balanced? The, the earth has been restored. What, what does that feel like? What does it look like? I think for me, it would feel like the handful of moments I've had in my life of transcendence that I, um, I, don't know, I think of Buddha, I guess. I think about like moving through the levels of testing and trial, fighting the demon Mara and coming up above the Bodha tree and looking down and like understanding that all of those things were necessary and for your good, but having a sort of transcendent vision of like, those things aren't me. Like the state I lived in, the fallen world and nature that I lived in, the woundedness that I carried, the blindness I carried was never me. Like, was never fully me, was never um, so much a part of my identity. It needed to be for a while. 
but it it's a moment really um I have been thinking about Zion a lot and I think it is a uh, part of just my personal journey right now that I'm uh, it's coming to a place where it's, it's more uh, urgent and necessary for me to understand it, but it's been this crazy blind spot. Like it's been this, I, I have no idea where to begin. Like I, I don't know. Because every time there's Zion, it's taken up, right? Like it doesn't stay here. God doesn't want us to know what Zion looks like. <laughs> it's not It's not meant to be here, right? It's a different sphere. It's a different level of light and intelligence. It's not supposed to stay here. So how can I and my telestial, how can I even comprehend? Um, and I, so I, I do turn to those moments of, of transcendence, those moments when I've felt like communion with God and with another individual, with God through another individual or with nature, whatever, like the medium or whatever the, the specifics. Um, I found a quote by Ross Gay, which I put in here that I, I think about all the time because it, um, it grounds me in, what Zion should look like. And uh, he said, what if we joined our sorrows? What if that is joy? And I think that goes back to everything we've been talking about, right? Like to really be open and vulnerable with each other, to really acknowledge how interconnected we are, how much we need each other, how much we have to give each other, how my salvation is tied to everyone else's salvation i'm not being saved in a vacuum i'm not being saved as an individual the earth is not being saved on its own you know like that that the way that um the depth to which we're willing to acknowledge how much we need each other is the depth to which we're willing to usher in zion um, to live those baptismal covenants of mourning with those who mourn, um, like in that mourning is the joy, right? Like in it, in that connection, like in that moment of doing a minuscule, small, in, like finite amount of what Christ did for all of us, communing with another being a sort of shaman for another, like trying to embody, trying to empathize in a way where we actually can blend our, our souls right together. That is, that is Zion. Um, and I think we're coming to a place. I think the millennials and like younger generations are coming to a place where they're fed up with, the affectations and the artificiality and the um, disconnect that uh, is sort of everywhere in, and shaping our relationships and shaping the ways in which we uh, 
interrelate. And I think the pandemic, right, is just another like hyperbolized, like, like I, I today just broke down crying because I haven't hugged my parents since February, <laughs> you know, like it's just coming to that point where we have to really wake up and choose and decide that being distracted from moment to moment with things that are flashy or momentarily interesting or whatever, like fill the void for a moment, just it's not working anymore. And I, I feel that is as like a rising consciousness um, that like my generation and younger generations are bringing in that like we can't not talk about issues anymore. We can't not like move on and grow. Like it's required of us to progress and acknowledge and heal together. Like that is um, fighting against the myth of individuality that uh, unfortunately America has really, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Pushed forward. <laughs> Capitalized on. Yes. <laughs> nice. nice. <laughs> Good pun. <laughs> Thanks. Abby, you got any thoughts? <laughs> yeah. I just keep thinking of, of that individualism, like you talked about Catherine and um, just kind of, also going along, uh, I guess, with with this capitalization on, um, you know, individualism, um, but perhaps you know a reinvestment in our future, um, and and reinvesting in in different things that bring us closer to Christ and also um, closer to the earth. I just keep thinking of like a cup of beans that's full and two other empty cups and. Um, you know, maybe pouring some of that, that full cup of beans into the other two um, and investing in community and investing in, um, you know, the ideas of, of things that will bring us back together. And maybe that was a poor analogy, but just, um, you know, kind of this redistribution um, of the way that we think about community as opposed to uh, how do I further myself um, and further, you know, uh, where I am financially, um, you know, uh, within my education, within, um, my community at large, but rather, you know, how do I further my community? How do I educate others? Um, how do I bring myself closer, uh, to these, these people within my community? Mm -hmm. Um, kind of a, a, a reflection outward as opposed to inward, um, and like you said, I really do think that the pandemic has also um, kind of given us a taste of, of what that can be like or what we really need. Um, because when it's taken away, you don't realize how good it was until it's gone, right? Um, and so in some ways, to me, Zion looks like that, reinvesting and, and redistributing um, and reconnecting with, with other people, just like you said, Catherine. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, uh, I have had some of, you know, similar thoughts. Like I was, I was kind of messaging with some friends yesterday and thinking, you know, when the pandemic, I know there will be no official end to the pandemic, you know, but when, when we start, you know, drawing to more of a close, what is, are we going to enter some kind of a euphoric Jubilee time where we're so happy to just be with each other and 
that like, I don't know. I, I know I will, I know I will take some euphoria at being able to, you know, just sit and talk with someone over brunch. Not, I mean, I love to do that before, but like, but to really like, to me, you know, waking up in Zion would look like getting out of bed, putting on my pants or maybe, maybe staying in my pajamas because it's Zion. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but it looks like having breakfast and it looks like being present. It looks like being here right now and not, not worried about anything anywhere else. Right. Um, and it looks like saying hi to my neighbors and actually caring <laughs> about saying hi to my neighbors rather than just like, Oh, Hey, yeah, how's it going? Um, and, uh, I, I to, like, to me, on like at least an individual level, that's what Zion looks like. On a communal level, like I, I really hope for some kind of, you know, that you know, in, in Moses seven, it talks about how Zion they are of, of one mind and one heart, uh, and that their uh, their hearts are knit together in righteousness. And there's no poor among them. I, I'm not a scripture master, uh, but you know that we are we are there's just this uh, diversity of, of oneness. I don't know. I'm, I'm saying a lot of things that probably don't make sense. Uh, any thoughts from you guys? Well, I was also thinking about, um, just as you were talking, that there's a reason that, you know, in these latter days, the Lord has us gathering scattered Israel, right? Um, that it is supposed to be this kind of communal effort, but also the effort to bring us back to a community. Um, and that, you know, the way that we do that is not by, um, financial means or, um, you know, hollow acts of, of, uh, kindness, but rather deep acts of service, um, and, and investing in other people, um, and really engaging with other people and bringing them back into the fold. Um, and so I, again, just to kind of echo that sense of community and, and commonality in, in the literal gathering of people, um, and that that is part of our, um, you know, task at hand in these latter days to bring people back together, um, and to rejoin, you know, at, at once, um, all together. Yeah, I really love that. I love the focus that you both have on um, diversity. I I think one of the things that things that has always been the most thrilling for me is meeting people who are from a different background, a different culture, speak a different language, have a completely different history than I do, but we're able to connect under. Um, personal encounters with deity or with the spirit or basic understanding of who we are as children of, of heavenly parents, um, that we have a purpose, that we have a mission, just very basic principles of the gospel. Um, that, and in the, and in the midst of all that, we all maintain our diversity. Like that's what makes us beautiful and unique and intrinsic to God's plan and to the health of the world. Um, I think that there's, uh, those are definitely, there's definitely in the do in the dualistic, 
um, worldview, the idea that diversity is a hindrance, it's a, it's a difficulty, it's a problem, because it doesn't streamline things, it makes things difficult to understand. Um, and you see this play out in the way that we poorly manage forests, how we poorly deal with, you know, we do monoculture, we do all of clear cutting, we do all of these things that completely um, negate and deny the reality of diversity and what that does for the health of uh, ecologies that include us as part of that ecology. Um, and I, it's a difficulty for me, uh, and I, I have um, decolonizing Mormonism on my stack of books. And it's like one of those that I'm, I'm really wanting to read, but also really dreading because I, it's just such a sadness inside of me. It's just like, I don't want to, it's one of those things. I don't want to deal with the reality of it. Right. It's but hard like, to see that shadow. Um, yeah. Um, but more and more I'm becoming okay with, um, uh, I guess redefining my relationship with the church as an institution and that the hold that it had on me once <laughs> perhaps as a returned missionary is just not there and um, that I can be accountable for the decisions I make from here on out and um, uh, understand that a direct connection with God for each of us is what will facilitate the, the sort of atrocities and darkness and, and uh, sorrows that have entered our culture and our worldview. It'll be the things that will help it dissolve and um, that we can pour more light into our understanding of, of each other. Um, and I'm very uh, just moved, like deeply moved by all of the um, protests that have happened and all of the willingness for people to pause and to think and to talk about in the church specifically, how we see people um, who are different than who are not white. <laughs> um, and anyway, so it, it's all related. It's all interrelated. Um, but yeah, I, I do, I do see, I loved this question that you had in here, like that the earth, can mirror Zion, the Zion making to us, that we can learn Zion from the earth to that diversity. I think that's huge because it really is something so vast that we don't understand in the natural world, like the degree of diversity just within the Amazon. Like we literally are killing the Amazon at a rate greater than we'll ever be able to discover what species are there. Like we're losing species before we discover them. Um, and that's heartbreaking to me. That's just another one of those things that is just really hard to sit with. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, we were supposed to be going into the empowering <laughs> <laughs> part of the discussion. Sorry. I, it just keeps like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think this stuff is empowering, you know, because, you know, like, especially when we're talking about Zion is our people of one mind of one heart. Um, and that the restoration of the earth, those two things are connected, you know, that, that we can't talk about 
saving the environment as if it's isolated from these social issues that go on. They're all, they're all aspects of the same sickness. You know, they're just different manifestations of the same disease. And if, if that's what, if, if the disease is Babylon, then getting rid of the disease and, and recognizing where, where the, you know, the effects are of Babylon in our reality and climate change is one of those effects, but so is racial inequality. So is sexual inequality. And so like, to me, what is the work of building Zion? The work of building Zion on earth looks like, looks like racial equality. It looks like showing up to the marshes. It looks like voting for, uh, for people who, who care to fix these issues, right? It, it looks like climate justice. It looks like caring about the fact that there are going to be islands full of people who are going to have to leave their homes because <laughs> their, their islands are going to be swan- you know, swallowed by the ocean. Um, and it's recognizing that all of these issues are, are aspects of the same problem and that we have to find some way to look at ourselves in the mirror and recognize where Babylon is so that we can begin moving into a new way of being in reality, not as just as individuals, but as a community, because it's not good enough to just do it as individuals. It's just, it's not good enough. Like, great. I, I'm, I, you know, I want people to, you know, do anti-racism training and to do, you know, to read more ecology books so that they can have, a, you know, so that they can recycle more, but it's not, I'm sorry, but it's not good enough. It's going to take all of us. And so, you know, an empowering message is to say, link arms with everyone around you and stand under this because t- it, we can only do it together. This is not something that as individuals we can, we can accomplish. So, I mean, then let's, let's end on the idea of at one mint, you know, because I, at the very beginning of the podcast, when we talked about, uh, you know, me and Abby, we, we talked about disconnection and about how in like at its, at our core disconnection from the earth and disconnection from each other, disconnection from God are the root issues of so much of the world. And that what Jesus came to do was at, he, he came to bring the world together again, to rebind, right? Religion has its root words in to realign, to relash together. Um, and so I love this idea of at one minute that that's what, you know, the, uh, the whole process of religion and spirituality is on earth is to bring us all back together again, is to bind us back together. So any, any final thoughts on just kind of an at one minute with the earth and, and sociality and people all together? It's very nebulous. <laughs> I think, um, you know, like you both talked about this kind of intersectionality um, of all of these different social and, and very physical aspects of our um, current existence um, is is not to go unnoticed that, you know, that very intersection where they all kind of collide is that at one moment, you know, the, the bringing together of those ideas and and those individuals um, into a place where we can have a kind of renewal together, if that makes sense. Um, and so, in in the overlapping of all of these issues and um, and things that we struggle with, that it's not something that we have to 
go about alone or not one single issue that we have to tackle um, in an isolated manner, that they can be resolved together um, and that that will kind of not only bring us closer together, but also celebrate that diversity within those issues um, is a really good example of that kind of at one moment um, and the opportunity that we have to bring them together. Um, just, I think, isolating issues, like you said, Madison, uh, becomes really problematic because we never really resolve it at its core. Um, and so I think, you know, the atonement um, and, and atoning for certain sins of ours um, allows us to kind of uh, atone for everything at once. Uh, maybe that's not a good idea to, to kind of blanket it, um, but rather, you know, to bring them together, I guess. If we expect to bring ourselves together as a community, then we should also expect um, to bring our issues and, and our sorrows together, join those sorrows together, um, like you said, Catherine, and, and really atone for them together. Mm. Yeah, thank you. I might sound like a bit of a radical saying this, but the more, and you know, I don't have like final. You're in good company. Final thoughts, <laughs> but. <laughs> um, at one moment, more and more to me, and I, I, I mean, I pretty much have said this already, means like completely disentangling ourselves from Babylon. Um, and so I, preparing for Dan's podcast, I was reading uh, Approaching Zion, just so much nibbly. <laughs> <laughs> And I, I like that collection because, I mean, it's a bit repetitive because it's just a collection of essays. Um, but I like the repetition because it helped me sort of paint this picture of what he meant by Babylon. And um, I literally, after reading like four or five of them, I became physically ill. Like, <laughs> you know, it sounds strange, but like, because I was, I was, recognizing the ways in which I am tied up in Babylon in ways that I did not realize and to a de degree that I didn't realize. And it was a visceral uh, acknowledgement in my body that like these things are holding you down. These things are keeping you from holding more truth and light. They're keeping you from um, like a greater harmony, right? Between your words and your actions. Um, that kind of like, I don't know, like kind of the sickness that you feel when you realize you're being a hypocrite about something and that there's, you have so much more vested in consumerism or ego or whatever the thing is the the praise of men the praise of the world like whatever your perhaps Achilles heel is like whatever the thing is that haunts you because we all have those things um and of course like there's you know causes for our woundedness there's mercy in all of that there's there's mercy in like the acknowledgement that like we are 
um, bound to Zion in these ways. But I, it was a, a real wake up call for me that um, Zion and Babylon cannot coexist inside of me. Like I have to really do the work to extract it before I can really even comprehend Zion as a internal state. And then as something that I bring to someone else from to a larger worldview. Um, but it's like the chicken and egg thing for me. It's like, well, part of individual healing and understanding and enlightenment is done through connection to others. It's done through service. It's done through communion with your brothers and sisters. It's not done. You can't do that work by yourself. And so I kind of see Zion as like an emergent quality as like, I like that. What happens when we heed the spirit, which I feel is feminine. That is my, (laughs) (laughs) we heed that voice that we uh, need each other, not just to like soothe our wounds, but to literally move beyond the veil of this existence. Like we are integral into each other's passing through the veils, right? That when we heed that, we seek each other, we come together, we need each other, we acknowledge that need and we rise together. And it's like, I don't know, I picture it as sort of, you don't really even realize what you're creating. You just do it because it's, it becomes your nature, it becomes what you desire above all. Um, and uh, you, you value seeing the face of God yourself more than having a prophet tell you what it looks like. Excellent thoughts. This has been a really great conversation. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I'm really, I, I love the application of the metaphor of Babylon, uh, juxtaposed to, to Zion, because I think, I think I know, at least for, in my case, sometimes it's hard to understand what Zion is unless we have something to juxtapose it against. Right. And it's really easy for me to understand what Babylon is because I feel like we're living in it. Right. And I, I, as an activist, like I'm in the world, I see all the problems and like, I understand how entangled I am in those systems and how, how hard it is to fight fight for environmental things. When I know I really love eating meat, <laughs> right? It's, it's, it's hard. It's hard to, it's hard to acknowledge that. And it is kind of, it's a sickness. I mean, not that, not that eating meat is a sickness, but, um, that seeing our shadow creates an embarrassment in us. It creates a sickness in us. Right. And so under, when you like, if, if, if I'm triggered by ideas of wealth equality or of taking care of the poor and taking care of the poor without any requirement from the poor. If I, if that triggers me, maybe I need to look inside myself and see why that is. Is that Babylon creeping up in my heart? Because we have, we know that in Zion, there are no poor among them. And, and so we, we already know that. And so if my heart flinches at that, for some reason, is that not Babylon inside of me whispering in my ear mm-hmm. saying, Hey, don't worry about it. I love that. Hey, don't worry about it. Yeah. I love that. I have, Yeah. I have a four-year-old and um, 
before really anything else, we started teaching him, you know, scriptures or anything specific to the gospel. We um, sort of as like anger management, <laughs> talked to him about his heart being soft and open or closed like a fist. And he really latched onto that imagery. Like we would open our hands and show him like when your heart is open, you can hold things, you can touch things softly, you can, and then like the difference between like having your fist clenched, it's hard, you can't let anything in. Um, and I think about that all the time. Like what in my life is making my heart hard? What is making it closed? Um, and you talked about this Madison in terms of like defensiveness and like those things that like, and all those things that you're just like, your ego is saying, this is mine, right? It's like the ring, but going back to the Hobbit, like <laughs> possession. It's like, right. It's like claiming that you have soul, like you're the exception. Like it goes, it's just Satan hundred percent. Like you're the exception to the rule. Like you don't have to abide by like morality codes or kindness codes because you're something special. Right. And so I, I think about that a lot. I think that's a good way to gauge like how your how is your heart responding? Because it is its own agent. Like it is its own thing. Like, you know, when you're doing something that is not, um, congruent with what your heart knows and when you are. Um, so anyway, I just appreciated that thought. Abby, any final thoughts? No, I don't want the last word. That was great. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just here like, Oh, (laughs) (laughs) no, I, this conversation, it, it was, it was a lot different than I thought it'd be. And I'm really pleased with the direction that, that it took. It was a little bit more mystical and a little bit more contemplative than I thought we we'd go, but I love it (laughs) because I, sorry, that's just my headspace. That's my headspace. I, uh, I, yeah, I, I read, I read a lot of Richard Rohr books this summer. And so I, I live, I try to live in a contemplative headspace and I try and, you know, uh, live in that non-dual state. <clears throat> try being the, the operative word. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's hard. Very hard. No. So I, this was, this was a very great conversation. Uh, Catherine, thank you so much for being on. Um, of course. Where, thank you guys. Where can our listeners, you know, find you, find your, your works? Like how, how can we, how can we find you? I have a website, um, www.catherineknightsontag.com. Sontag is with two N's. <laughs> and Knight is with a K. Um, and there you with a K, yes. Um, you can find uh, links to my book, The Tree at the Center for Purchase, um, as well as articles I've written, including one for Bristlecone Fireside. And um, a list of, <laughs> of past interviews and podcasts and uh, other this events happening. So, yeah. Excellent. My book is available at uh, King's English, which makes me so happy. So you can order King's English online or written vision and Provo carries it. Barnes and Noble <laughs> or Amazon. <laughs> Babylon so or these nice little, these nice little city distribu- <laughs> distributors. 
<laughs> yeah, but anyway, by Common Consent Press, I mean, they're fabulous. If you haven't checked out their stuff, they just, they've published some really amazing books. So check them out. Just generally, they're really wonderful. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of Bristlecombe Firesides. If you liked this conversation, please subscribe and share widely with your friends, family, and neighbors. Consider leaving us a rating through the podcasting app of your choice. For more from Abby, Madison, and the Bristlecombe family, follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and visit our website to enjoy more earthy content of faith, activism, and belonging to the earth. From the Aspen Mountains, Juniper Forests, Red Rock Deserts, and Salty Lakes of Utah, we wish you peace and goodness as you strive to find yourself in the family of the earth.